Hello, and welcome back to the Elmtown podcast. It's your old friend, Kevin. You haven't heard from me for a while. We've had a little bit of a break over the holidays, but we're back in the saddle. I've got a few different episodes lined up, so uh, you can expect some of those to be landing in your podcatcher soon, starting with this one. Before we get into the show today, I just want to thank our sponsors. We have Ellie at ellie-app.com. That is the tool we are all using to send snippets of Elm across the internet to each other that we can run and, and learn from. It's a really valuable tool. It's amazing that it is free to our community and um, I am using it constantly whenever I am in Elmland. You should too. I'd also like to thank CultureAmp, my employer. We are based in Melbourne, Australia, and we build a tool that companies use to improve their workplaces by learning from and taking action on employee feedback. You should join our team in Melbourne, Australia. If you're anywhere near that part of the world, head over to cultureamp.com jobs to find out what we've got available. And finally, Joel Claremont, our producer, I'm going to call him. Joel is a regular financial sponsor of this show. He is the organizer of the Milwaukee Functional Programming and Milwaukee PHP meetups. And we thank him very much for his ongoing support. Xavier Ho, thank you so much for editing this show. We all owe you a great debt for making us sound so smart every single episode. And now it's time to get into the show. My guest today is Brian Hicks. Hello, Brian. Hello. We're here to talk about your new library, Elm Particle. But before we do, would you mind introducing yourself? Because you have a lot of credits to your name in the Elm community. Uh, uh, now I'm nervous about that. <laughs> Okay, so hi, I'm Brian. I uh, work at No Red Ink. I write about Elm on my blog. I am one of the organizers of ElmConf, which was, I guess, the first Elm conference. And now there are four, which is really wonderful to see. Mm -hmm. uh, and I write uh, libraries and stuff for fun. And this Elm particle is one of them. Right, so you uh, you posted this on the Elm discourse a couple of weeks back. I jumped straight on it because it's my favorite thing, which is code that m makes pixels change color on the screen. <laughs> and I noticed in your post, you, you said that you picked this up because you were looking for a project that was joyful, that brought you joy. It sounds like you and I share the same idea of what is joyful because, uh, yeah, I immediately saw what you were going for here and I was like, that would be a fun project. So tell us what brought you to this idea. Did you actually have an app that needed this feature? Had you built it the hard way before and felt the need for a library? Or was it really just a, what could I build today sort of thing? Huh. So right before Christmas, maybe, one of the designers at Norad Inc. said, hey, uh, we want to do particles like just to celebrate student accomplishments. Mm. Uh, no Red Ink is, we make educational software. And so we want to celebrate student accomplishments. And can you do it in Elm? Coworker and I responded to him on Slack and said, well, there's really nothing, you know? So sorry about that. This is a little bit tragic, right? Um, for a language that we all like, we don't have a way to do this like celebration that the designers mm. wanted to do. And so we both kind of said, oh, this would be fun. And my coworker took the approach of, oh, I'm going to uh, explore in this with WebGL and just sort of uh, sketch out some fun stuff here and have fun with it. Uh, and I took the approach of like, oh, what if this was just an SVG so that you could embed it uh, basically wherever? Uh, we only support evergreen browsers at No Red Ink. Uh, and so we can use SVG for just anything, which is wonderful. 
So it sort of went from there. He and I threw some sketches back and forth of the API, and eventually I was posting confetti and stuff in the uh, <laughs> engineering front end channel and just saying like, hey, I made some confetti. Uh, hey, I made some better confetti. Uh, hey, uh, you know, would y'all like to add some confetti? But this was right at the tail end of our upgrade to OM 0.19. And so I wrote it for 0.19 and it ended up like we haven't used it yet because ah, we right. just finished the upgrade. We have plans to add it in uh, one of the features that we're building now. I'm shooting confetti across my screen as we speak and nice. uh, having some fun doing it. <laughs> There's a lot going on here in a demo like this one. I can only imagine that not all of these requirements were apparent from the beginning. So like, what was the simple version you started out by building and what sort of niceties did you add along the way? I actually started off with this confetti demo. As a side note, you mentioned like, oh yeah, I'm sitting here just clicking right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like that's uniformly the reaction. Like people are just like, oh, I want to play with this. It makes me extremely happy that that's happened because I didn't anticipate it at all. I showed it to my mother-in-law and she just sat there for like 10 minutes just clicking. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I think I got some here. This is more engaging than many iPhone games. <laughs> so I thought, what things have particles? Obviously, the, the designers said they wanted to have confetti. And I said, well, okay, confetti seems like a reasonable thing to start with. But also, particle systems are good for, like, smoke and fire and water and uh, other sorts of, like, little fluids that are nice visual flourishes. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think any of them were as fun as, like, confetti or fireworks. And so I started with confetti because I said, okay, well, what if you could just move your mouse around the screen and the confetti emoji would follow you around? And then when you clicked, it would be the particles that you can see coming out of the, the confetti emoji, uh, specifically the one that Slack and GitHub and everybody called the Tada emoji. Yes. It's a party popper. And so I started working backwards from that requirement to create the whole library, really. So I'm looking at it, things like you have two different kinds of particles in this system. You have the you have the little squares and you have the long strips, and they behave differently. There's not just like velocity and acceleration. There is also some drag and random lifetimes. Was all of that immediately apparent as stuff you like features you wanted for for confetti and for for particle systems, or was some of that? Um, like, okay, I've built a thing, but it looks too regular, too uniform. What's, what's another way to make it feel more natural? It was closer to the second option. It started looking, eh, this is not great. How can I improve it? Uh, I basically started with saying, okay, how do I simulate gravity and velocity? Because particles are affected by gravity and velocity. So I messaged uh, Andre and I said, hey, uh, you know about physics, right? Would this be good in like WebGL or SVG? And he goes, well, WebGL, maybe not the best for this because it doesn't handle like lots and lots of little things uh, very well. Uh, so try SVG first and see how it goes. Like, oh, okay, that seems reasonable. And he said, okay, here's the formula for gravity. Just knock yourself out. And so like I kept just bothering him with questions about math because I'm not a math person. Oh, it's good good to have <laughs> friends with physics in their CV. Right? Thanks to him for uh, for getting that set up uh, and for answering questions like, you know, what, what do these components mean? Like, I keep seeing these physical equations and it's just single letter variable names and I don't know what any of them mean. Help. <laughs> 
given that this is a podcast, I bet a lot of people are listening to this on their phones and trying to go and use this demo on their phones. I will say that the the party popper confetti demo, for me, it didn't work on my phone because there was no way to like move the cursor around and, and tap. So uh, I had to wait till I got home to experience the majesty of this confetti, but trust me, it's worth it. Is, is what I will say to our listeners. <laughs> what I was wondering is for someone who has not yet explored this library, could you kind of sketch out the boundaries of what exactly it does for you and what you have to bring to the party as a user of this thing? Sure. So it does a simple physical simulation that involves gravity, initial speeds, lifetimes for each particle, and drag. So it's assuming that you're in some sort of an atmosphere. Um, it doesn't really do a lot other than that. It's It's got like a two-dimensional coordinate system mm -hmm. as well. So everything's yeah. got an X and Y. What it does is it figures out, based on the parameters you provide, where a particle should be at any given time. And then it passes uh, data about that particle off to you to render whatever particles you would like to show. So you're getting a, you have to provide a view function to put it in, in the Elm architecture terms. Yeah, that's exactly right. Except that you don't have to worry about the location. It uses SVG and in SVG, you have those G elements. I think yes. they stand for group. That's how I always think of them anyway. And you can set a translation on a G element and the library just does that and sticks your particle inside there. So you have essentially a coordinate system starting at zero zero that you can just do whatever to which turns out to be really handy for uh for instance rotating rectangles or elongating spheres into ovals so elm particle is actually moving your particles around for you by providing you like it's moving the the group elements around and you just have to render your your particle for, at zero zero every time it's not like your view function has to say okay where am i this time i need to paint myself over there this time mm -hmm. yeah oh that's nice uh it doesn't leave you completely on your own though there are a bunch of helpers about what percentage of the lifetime is this through and what direction is this traveling in and how fast is it traveling there? That was going to be my next question is just like how stateful can your particles be? Because your view function is going to be completely stateless, I gather. There's no there's no facility for you to like do a little update of your your particles model as it uh, as it's being rendered. Is there? No, not right now. Once you put a particle into the system, it will be rendered until the end of its lifetime. This simplifies things pretty significantly on the back end of uh, the particle system. You can just map over a list without having to worry about, oh, should this be changed or removed? It also simplifies the code you have to write a lot. I haven't found a situation yet where I've absolutely needed an update function, so I just haven't added one. Uh, that said, if somebody does come up with one and says, well, this you know particular effect really, really needs that for these reasons, I'm not you know saying that will always be the case. Oh, yeah. That ability to access how far through my lifetime I am is a really nice proxy for a lot of the visual effects I could imagine wanting to do. So how much did the API change as you were working on this? Did you start with some design and move in a different direction? Or have you designed enough uh, Elm libraries that you knew exactly what you were going for? I started off with saying, okay, I know that I want to write a library, uh, probably. But first, I'm just going to write an app and then extract the library out of that. So I wrote the particle demo, the, the confetti one. Uh, I just wrote that 
and said, oh, okay, this works okay. It was just a very basic version with just colored rectangles and uh, no drag, no uh, lifetimes or anything. It just like spouted stuff at a single point. It didn't even render the emoji yet. And then I said, okay, so what are the building blocks that I needed to build this? And where is actually the abstraction boundary here that needs to happen? I pulled that stuff out into a different module and found, oh yeah, turns out that this revolves around a particle data structure that has a bunch of internal information that we don't want to expose. That tends to naturally happen when you're designing an API. And then I said, okay, well, what else do we need? We need um, particle systems do water. So let's make something that looks a little bit like water. And from there, I discovered we needed randomness and a specific kind of randomness. We don't need a linear randomness. That is like a, a dice. If you roll a set of dice, like with six sides, you're equally likely, if it's fair dice, die to get uh, one of six options. We need something that follows uh, more or less normal distribution, so like a bell curve, where you'll have a strong central location and then a bunch of fall off to the sides. And if you follow that, like you use the normal distribution everywhere instead of a, a linear distribution, you tend to get much more natural looking results. Yeah, I had to look that one up when I was scrolling through the examples and um, I was seeing, oh, you're importing uh, normal from random float. I've never used normal before. I wonder what that does. And I went and looked it up and I said, ah, yes. Yes, that makes sense. It's really handy, actually. I did a bunch of research trying to figure out how to generate random numbers according to a normal distribution. And I was like, oh man, there's a lot of math here. <laughs> like, okay, it's actually really weird math because you usually just want one number but uh, the way to do it is you generate two numbers, convert them to a polar coordinate, perform some transformation on them, and then convert them back to a rectangular coordinate. And now you've got two numbers that end up in the normal distribution, which is really handy, but usually you only need one. So you just throw the other one out. <laughs> but ultimately, like that normal function was part of the random library, right? It's not in the core random library. It's in random extra. Oh, okay. That's where it came from. Yeah, mm -hmm. great. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to implement this myself and it's going to be awkward. And then I remember random extra exists and has everything. And it does. It has normal. Yeah, so normal is just this wonderful little function that takes a mean and a standard deviation as two floats. And it returns a value in that range for the normal distribution with that mean and standard deviation. So you were talking about how uh, you came up with this data structure for a particle to begin with, and and um, I'm looking at the code there. You have used that opaque data type pattern. That might be something some of our listeners aren't that familiar with. Did you want to talk a bit about you know what you chose to keep private in your data structures and how? I tend to start APIs with an app, like I mentioned, where you can access everything, and then I try to access less and less things, and then pull it out into a uh, single constructor union type, which doesn't have the constructor exported, so a uh, an opaque type. Uh, this has like a bunch of nice things. You just can put whatever in there without uh, bumping API versions. You can mess around with the internals of that constructor, however makes sense for your library, as long as the external API doesn't change. It also prevents people constructing that data type in invalid ways and from deconstructing it to look inside the insides, the guts of it and relying on your implementation specific behaviors. So yeah, uh, opaque types are really nice. 
Yeah, the opaque type and like the configuration pipeline is a pattern that I've found myself using more often than not for these sort of things. And yeah, just that I've got a function that will create a default uh, one of these things, a default particle in your case. And then I've got a bunch of with functions that I can pipe that default thing through to modify its configuration uh, one step at a time. Yeah. It's really elegant and I feel like it's one of those things that you maybe don't see as a pattern until your second or third week of Elm. It's not in any of the getting started tutorials. It's core to making this code that protects its users from using it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I only ever saw that pattern for the first time in Elm. Had, do you know, is, is that pattern inherited from somewhere or have we just all stumbled on it together? I'm not sure. I first saw it in Luke Westby's HTTP builder library. Mm -hmm. uh, at which point I said, hey, uh, this is great. And he goes, yeah, it's great. I'm like, yeah, it's great. And then we were just enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And I, I never remember to ask like if it was from somewhere. <laughs> CultureAmp's uh, like reusable user interface components library, all of them are configured this way. You you get a, a dropdown menu dot in it, and then uh, you get a default model for an empty dropdown menu, and then you can modify it with a bunch of with functions. And it's it's really readable and, and nice. Yeah, it tends to make really nice sort of widget libraries. I've just done the same thing this week myself with a, a tooltip at work. So that, that makes me think of something else. And so uh, I had a couple of questions. First of all, you talked about at the start of this project, um, someone was thinking of it as a WebGL thing. You decided to tackle it with SVG. Was there any point at which SVG was letting you down or slowing you down or, or wasn't the best tool for the job? Or was it just surprisingly smooth the whole way? I'm not sure it'll be SVG forever because yeah, there are a little bit of uh, quirks about that. Like you can tell a browser like, hey, could you please play this like 4K HD video with 5.1 surround sound in the browser? And the browser's like, yep, yes, I can do that. No problems <laughs> at all. And then you say, would you mind for me please rendering hmm, 20 circles? And it says, no, no, surely you're kidding. That's not a thing I can do at all. All at once? <laughs> yeah. It's really unreasonable like that. Um, SVG has similar quirks. Uh, with performance that the rest of the DOM does. So for example, certain properties are extremely expensive. They force uh, a whole fresh redraw. Mm. So if you try to animate opacity, um, for example, using the lifetimes in Elm Particle, you try to draw a opacity function using a uh, four point curve, Yeah. right? And that goes above one, you're gonna change that floating point value on every single frame. Even and when even it's completely it's like opaque. Above one. Yeah. yeah. Just because it's a floating point number. And it's like, oh, well, uh, now you have to redraw every particle every time. You have to recalculate that. Sorry, recalculate its opacity. When you wouldn't necessarily have to do that if you could just rely on the stacking order. So one of the things that the demos in Elm Particle all do is have a cutoff that's just a linear fade out that triggers after 90% of the lifetime, I think. So yeah, they fade out really nicely right at the end. The, the confettis don't just blip out, they kind of slide out. And that's another area where a normal distribution actually makes it look way more natural. The lifetime of the particles is one second with a standard deviation of like a tenth of a second or something like that. 
And that means that most of them are around one second, and then some of them are a little longer, and some of them are shorter, and very few of them are much longer and much shorter. Uh, and that means that you have a nice fade-off that looks like a natural like curve that you would use for animation, but really it's just a linear animation. It's a, there's nothing tricky about it except that these shapes you'll register as different as a group than you would individually. Hmm. So I'm accustomed to running into like DOM performance issues and Elm provides certain tools for dealing with that, like uh, using keys to reuse DOM nodes instead of recreating them all the time. But it sounds like a lot of the performance bottlenecks you're running into with these sorts of applications is is the, at the rendering part. It's not adding and removing nodes from the DOMs that's expensive. It's the renders that are caused by the constantly changing properties of those nodes. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And so, what would uh, what would a WebGL port of this look like? Would a uh, would most of the API survive, and it would it would just be the view function you ha would have to write would be to provide some sort of WebGL primitive instead? You know, if I were to do that, I would try to make as much of the API stay the same as I could, and provide a different rendering layer. Uh, that said, I don't know if that's even possible. I've never <laughs> used WebGL. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> oh, it's very, very mysterious. I would love to get a, someone who's just like a WebGL guru on the show sometime to, to tell us a bit about it, because it's, it's this mysterious part of Elm that it's supported in the core syntax of the language. When you look at uh, WebGL uh, programs written in Elm, you're like, hang on, that's not Elm. But sure enough, it is. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing that we have this tool in, in our language that a lot of us uh, have, have never seen used. So I'm still flicking through the confetti example code here, and there's some other things that jump out at me as interesting. So the core thing here is that you provide a generator for new particles. Mm -hmm. That's not a function that gets called to create a particle, obviously, because uh, you want some randomness there. And the way we do randomness in Elm is with these generator, uh, the, we were a function that returns a generator of, of random things. And um, I think the confetti one's pretty nice. It's, it's got the square and the streamer and you modeled each one separately. You were talking earlier about the normal distribution function. I think another piece of randomness utility that I've not had an occasion to use before, but I think comes immediately into the fore here is this, this ability to say, here's three possibilities, generate them with uniform randomness. So random.uniform. And then you've also got some weighting. So it's like, if you look closely, all the colors don't turn up exactly the same amount of time either. You've, so you've got, a, you've got a flavor to this uh, confetti with the random.weighted function. Mm -hmm. Like those are new to me. Were they new for you here as well? Weighted randomness, I've actually used a lot. I have a, um, a strange obsession with Markov chains. I really like to make Markov <laughs> chains of things. So weighted randomness is super familiar to me. Yeah. Because that's basically the entire, uh, the, that's the thing that makes a Markov chain work. I'm sitting here pretending I remember what a Markov chain is, but I don't. It is a, uh, a state machine in which the next state is determined by only the previous state. Ah. So if you have, um, say, sunny and rainy days, if you have a sunny day, you're likely to have another sunny day. And if you have a rainy day, 
you have you're likely to have some rainy day or it's likely to switch between them and those two things have different weights and so if you get enough data together you can set down those probabilities and say well in a sunny day there's a 15 and 20 chance that it will stay sunny and a 5 and 20 chance that it will stay or that it will become rainy and so then you can like do weighted random based on those probabilities to figure out the next thing that the weather will do uh, or at least to make some sort of weighted prediction and these things tend to look like the data that produced them but they are not actually the data that produced them so they make pretty fantastic like random gibberish generators which is <laughs> mostly why i like them could you talk a bit about the subscriptions? Because um, when I was reading the documentation, there was a bit of, um, I guess there's a bit more going on there than I might have expected. Because I kind of just expected a convenience for managing all these request animation frame subscriptions. But there's a bit more going on there from memory. There shouldn't be a whole lot going on. In order to run the particles, you need to have a subscription. Because, yeah, it uses request animation frame, or more specifically, request animation frame deltas, so I don't have to calculate them myself and figure out, like, if the browser tab changed and whatnot. That takes a list of emitters. Yes, that's what surprised me, is I expected the list of emitters to be, like, somewhere in an initializer or something like that. But I'm, I'm getting to control that in my subscriptions. Yeah, so... It turns out that it's a really bad idea to store any kind of function in your model because that means mm. you can't serialize it, which means that the debug tools don't work well. Ah, yep. So when writing this, I said, okay, I know about this constraint that we shouldn't have functions in a model or anywhere that's like serialized or compared specifically. And so we need to do something a little bit better. Uh, and I realized that in the Elm architecture, subscriptions always gets the current value of model. So we can keep information in the model about what particles should be being emitted right now. Like, for example, you might model uh, how much water should be coming out of a spigot at once. Oh, yeah. So it's like a tap. You can turn it on a bit and then turn it off a bit. It doesn't just have to be on and off. And you can use that to tell the particle system, uh, here's what I want you to do when the model looks like this. I want you to export this particle or don't do it. Uh, and so the, the subscription is a perfect place for that. Uh, and it gives me a nice handle on the uh, back end of that to say, okay, are there any particles in this system? Yes, then I will subscribe to request animation frames. Otherwise, I'll stop that subscription so that we don't need to run uh, 60 frames per second of nothing. So you've got these two different ways of creating particles. You can do it in an instant with uh, in your update function by updating your, your particle system with like instantaneously creating a list of new particles or you can have this generator sitting in your subscription that is ongoing every time it receives a slice of a second it generates this many new particles that gets you the two types of demos that you've got there the confetti and the water so the confetti is like click in an instant you get a bunch of particles and the water is like a continuous flow of new particles mm -hmm. What you said before about like the, the adjustable spigot immediately makes me want to go and write uh, as a, an exercise, write a, a demo that has that, that adjustable flow so that the generator in the subscription is no longer a constant value, but it's something that changes in response to the state of the program that I'm excited about writing that, that at the moment. 
is there anything else that you know if someone were picking up this uh maybe for a meetup workshop and is there like a first project with elm particle that isn't already covered by your examples that you might recommend people have a go at building i would recommend just making confetti like there's so many <laughs> ways to do it other kinds of confetti spinning confetti mm-hmm yes. spinning confetti would be good uh I released a new version of the library that has a helper to get the speed of a particle. Uh, we keep the velocity as a polar coordinate, so we have both direction and speed. Yeah, I noticed that. Some of your internal data is Cartesian and some of it is polar. Is How did you get to those? It used to be all floats. And then I realized that I could use the type system because the compiler will unbox those where possible. Uh, so there's no performance penalty to not just using floats. Like you can use a single constructor union type and be fine. Uh, it also gives us some type safety so that I can't mix up a Cartesian and polar coordinate, which are both just, you know, two floating point numbers. So maybe to close off, I was wondering about some of the meta work you did around releasing this library. It's It's got a very nice set of documentation baked into the Elm package in the standard way, but you've also got these demos that you can click out to that are that are like live linkable versions of the examples that are included in the, the source code. How much of that is just routine for you now in putting a new library together, or did you break any new ground here? I don't think I broke any new ground here. So I told you I have a thing for Markov chains. The other thing I have a weird thing for is extremely complicated make files. <laughs> and yes. Yeah, it's not pretty in there, but it generates something that I like. So that's generating the GitHub site that hosts these examples. They're just done with a make file? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's just a script that it compiles the code and then renders a, another HTML page that has in one hand the code and in the other hand an iframe link to the compiled code. Mm. That's it. Yeah. That's all you need to do. It's super nice. I feel like most package authors do go to the trouble of, of providing some sort of demo like that. I just, I've never thought of it as being that lightweight to put one together. I've always thought, oh, I'm going to have to host it somewhere and I'm going to need a, a webpack build to put together, to put it in a nice page. But you've, you've shown here to me that it doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, yeah, the scripts are, are a little bit of a mouthful if you've not done any shell scripting before, but it's, it's lightweight. It gets the job done in a relatively small amount of code with very little that can go wrong or need maintenance. The uh, ElmConf site is actually generated in a similar way. It's all just a couple of scripts that extract an AST from a markdown file and then perform transformations based on the AST. So it's like, it's a compiler, I guess. Mm, mm. Uh, when you put it that way, it's not so, so simple. <laughs> but it's like, it's not bad to to do that kind of thing. It's just scripts that compose together well. Everybody likes that. It's functional programming. Yeah. So is there anything else that you would like to do with Elm Particle that you haven't had time to do yet? Like, is there a 2.0 somewhere in the distant future in your imagination? I think I would like to get it into a uh, production app and see how things really shake out and make a bunch of performance improvements, probably. Uh, the other thing that I'd kind of like to figure out a nice solution for is having particles with trails. Uh, to do that, you need to store the history of all of the particles, which fortunately we have a perfect format for that internally. It's just the deltas of time and the deltas of distance, which we already have in the 
the particle update function to understand where things should go. So I did a demo uh, just sort of for myself where I put that in and then made a, uh, a firework with trailers and that worked okay but it really killed the performance and I don't want to ship something that if you use it because you're just like oh this could be cool all of a sudden everything is worse yeah minimize the number of foot guns you ship exactly <laughs> yeah I think uh, if I'm imagining like what I don't see how to do with this yet that I might want to do it's like having uh, new particles spawn from the death of a previous particle so, you know, a, a confetti goes and then at the end of it, it emits three puffs of smoke or something like that that go in different directions. Yeah. So particles from particles, it's, that's kind of not in the model of this thing yet, is there? Yeah, particles from particles is one thing that I have in mind because a lot of fireworks that I've seen just as source material, like totally have that. Like it happens all the time. Or like a waterfall crashing onto a rocks at the mm -hmm. bottom or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It all comes down to confetti and waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. The other thing that would be nice, and which would probably be solved at the same time, is to be able to update particles while they're running. So mm, if you go and blow a bubble, that's a pretty cool looking particle. And it's fairly simple to render but it doesn't travel regularly because it's sort of squishy. And so the wind blows it and it changes direction. And so the way the wind moves, it changes and then it changes more. So there's this loop of, it's just sort of like wobbling around everywhere. And you can't model that right now, but I would really like to because bubbles are great. All right, so I understand this, uh, this little podcast is not the only place you're gonna be talking about Elm Particle. You've got a conference talk coming up. Yeah, I'll be talking at Oslo Elm Day on i think it's the 16th of february 2019 uh, about elm particle that'll be sort of a, a generative art approach talking about how particles are generated and how to make natural looking things based on source material using this library mm, our editor xavier's ears just perked up i'm positive of that <laughs> <laughs> hi xavier <laughs> all right well thank you so much for joining us i love uh, i love a deep dive into a library like this and as soon as i saw it i knew this was going to be a lot of fun thanks for coming on brian thank you and thank you listener for listening to elm town uh, hope to see you here again soon bye for now